Can you imagine not having access to a Bible that you can read in your own language? Over a billion people worldwide don't have the full Bible in the language they know best. In 2017, Christ Church partnered with The Seed Company, whose mission is to see all languages have scripture by 2025. Through Bible translation, we see life transformation. Our church accepted the challenge to fund the translation of the 1,151 verses of the book of Luke into the Ormid language for the Ormid people in the state of Odisha in the southeastern part of India. A part of India that is persecuted with churches being destroyed and pastors being harmed by radical Hindus. The translation was completed in December 2017. This translation has allowed the Jesus film to be made, giving them more access to scripture. It is the only movie in their language, so everyone is a captive audience. The Ormid people now have the opportunity to encounter the living Jesus and the life transformation he can give them. A pastor named Ismail Chetty from Beersheba Church of God received the Ormid Luke Bible, and he was very happy. He said, How great it is to have the Dom Bible, which we have never had before. When I read this Bible, I feel joy and happiness and want to jump in joy for the Lord because He has done this for our community. By reading this Bible, many people will be blessed and many will come closer to the Lord. Thank you, Christ Church for helping others discover life with God. Yes, uh, thank you for participating in this. When we were going through the Gospel of Luke, we said, let's make this available in another language. You stepped up, supported that. Some others at the church stepped up and supported the translation or the use of that translation to make the Jesus film. And it is likely that one of the six churches that we will start, that we will help plant because of the REACH campaign will be with this people group. So uh, that's unfolding well, and we're excited about that. Welcome to those joining us at Crossroads Highland Park and upstairs at the 01. So in uh, 1984, I was invited by Dr. William Lane Craig, an apologist uh, with a friend of mine, to go with him to a discussion that was going to take place at Lake Forest College on religion. It was not to be a debate, it was to be a discussion, it was just a small gathering, uh, and so I went. And it turned out to be not much of a discussion. So, like, within the first minute, the professor at Lake Forest College said, God is transrational, and he was getting ready to make a point after that, and, and Dr. Craig says, wait, 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 what do you mean God is transrational? What does that mean? He says, well, I mean that God is above rationality. He's higher than rationality. He's not bound by the laws of rationality. And Dr. Craig says, well, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. If God is above rationality, we cannot have a rational discussion about him. And nothing that he said, nothing that we find in Scripture can we believe to be rational. This is, this is a non-starter. And the professor said, well, if it's, a non- it's a non-starter if you're going to power up and enforce, you know, force me to adopt your uh, you know, your guidelines for this. And Dr. Craig said, well, I don't know what you mean by that. Are you speaking rationally, or do your words mean absolutely anything you want them to mean, right? So, so this was sort of the gist of the next 45 minutes. We had a discussion about whether we could have a discussion, and uh, yeah. So fast forward a couple years. I'm graduated now. I'm, I'm in Washington. I'm a college pastor. I have a conversation with a student. 
And it's, it's a good conversation, 45 minutes. I, I share the gospel, and, and in the end, I sort of invite him to step forward and, and decide to become a Christ follower. And he said, well, uh, you know what? I am glad that Christianity is true for you, but it's not true for me. And I said, okay, well, just for the record, it's either true or it's not. It's not that it could be true for me and not true for you. And he said... I'm glad that that statement is true for you, but it's not true for me. And I said, okay, I've been here before. I've seen this. I said, so just so you know, you're violating the law of non-contradiction. It can't rain and not rain in the same place at the same time. And he said, I'm glad if that statement is true for you, but it's not true for me. So I hit him. I did not hit him. I was not... And it, I, I wanted to, but not because I was mad, but because when you have these nonsensical conversations in the theoretical realm, nothing like reality sort of brings you out of it. And I, I wanted to hit him and say, was that true for you or was it just true for me? <laughs> right? Now, a couple years later, and I started to have more and more of these conversations, and a couple years later, uh, somebody explained to me, so this would have been late 80s, somebody explained to me that I was bumping up against post-modernity. So if you are my age or older, uh, you potentially have a more traditional worldview, that is one that is sort of, sort of grounded on Judeo-Christian ethics, or uh, you might have a modern worldview. You might have bought into modernity. And so you have a, a, an enlightenment, post-enlightenment framework based on reason and science. And if you're in either of those two camps, then you think the conversation that I've had with these students is, is ridiculous. What are, they, what are they teaching students today? That's just nonsense. If you're significantly younger than me, then you likely have a, more of a postmodern mindset. And you think, first of all, that I've done a very bad job of explaining and illustrating postmodernity. And you want to say, well, it's not exactly like modernity was working, right? The quintessential modernists were the Nazis. They were, you know, rigorously empirical and scientific, but the truth didn't change their heart, and they gave us World War II. And so. Look, I'm not going to defend, uh, we're not, we're not going to have a philosophical lecture here. I'm not going to defend modernity I'm not, or, or post-modernity. I'm not going to attack them. I, I simply want to say, look, we have to understand that, uh, that, the, that the ground underneath our feet is changing. It's moving. And that it's not just that culture is shifting, but the assumptions informing culture are shifting. And that when we come to Jesus Christ, when we become a Christ follower, we cannot add Jesus on top of whatever assumptions we may have bought into. That, that the claims of Christ are, are, are foundational. And they challenge the assumptions that we have. And there's a whole new set of challenges. And so today, as we continue to go through Galatians, I want to look, and it's the second half of chapter 1, it's the first half of chapter 2, it's a narrative section. I want to look at what's happening. Paul's telling his story. I want to look at what's happening. But I also want to look, and then step back and look at the assumptions that Paul has in place for him to say the things that he's saying. 
Because, again, I think it's the assumption level that we have to uh, understand and appreciate. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, it's Galatians chapter 1. We begin with verse 11. I will remind you, the, the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians is a letter that he wrote in response to some problems that were taking place. So Paul and Barnabas are the first missionaries on one of their first journeys. They're up in northern Turkey. They start a number of churches. Then they move on. After they have moved on to do this again in another area, they hear that a group has come into town and is trying to change the message. And so Paul writes a letter. Much of the New Testament is made up of letters that were written by Paul and also James and John and Peter. But they write to people who are having problems or questions. And because we have essentially the same problems and questions, there's a little differences here and there. But because we have the same problems and questions, we read these letters, believing them to be inspired by God as well. And and there's a lot that we can learn. So the letter to the Galatians is a particularly angry letter because Paul feels as though the Galatians are heading down the wrong path at the most important point so that they're messing up the message. When he went in, he said, you want a relationship with God? Faith in Christ, trust in Christ equals salvation and Works, a changed life that leads you to love and serve and care for the poor and other things. Faith plus nothing equals salvation plus works. This group that has come in, the Judaizers are also referred to as, in some translations, call them the false brothers. Some call them sham Christians. Some call them dogs. Some call, Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh. There's all kinds of terms. This group, religious hardworking, upstanding, sincere people are saying, Paul got it wrong just a little bit. It's faith plus religious works equals salvation. Faith plus religious works. And in that context, it's circumcision and it's dietary practices. It's Jewish culture. If a Gentile wants to become a Christian, they first have to become a Jew. That's what they're saying. And uh, Paul is going to write and And his response, he's quickly going to go to his story, and his response is going to be a general sort of story. Paul always tells his story. But he's going to tell his story, highlighting the parts that make it clear that he is qualified to correct them and that they're wrong. So, Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was it taught, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And those verses then sort of set up what he's going to talk about now for the rest of the section. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So, look, everybody, every Christ follower has a story. The stories are all the same, and each story is unique. Paul's story is remarkable. In one sense, it's not exceptional. 
He tells it over and over. He tells it three times in the book of Acts. He tells it in the book of Philippians, or letter of the Philippians. He tells it here in Galatians. He tells it over and over. If you meet Paul, you hear Paul's story. Paul leads with his story. And his story is, I was more religious than anybody you ever met. I tried harder to be good. I tried harder to keep all the laws. I was crazy religious. I also hated Christians. I hated Christianity. I thought Jesus was a country hick. Uh, with a Galilean accent from a know-nothing family who, who was foolish enough to get caught up in this Roman uh, Sadducean controversy and killed. And that should have been the end of it, but these unemployed fishermen and these hysterical women keep running around everywhere telling people that he, they've seen him alive, he's come back from the dead. And so I'm trying to shut them down. I was trying to kill those people. I was doing everything I could to put an end to this nonsense when <laughs> I met Jesus. And he changed everything. And he, he broke into my world. He revealed himself to me. And I took a radical turn. So that's what he's saying. Um, I was more zealous. I was working harder. I was more religious than any of, uh, any of those for the traditions of my fathers. Verse 15. But when God... okay. And now the, the verb is going to change. The pronouns are going to change. Paul's been all about, I was doing this, I was doing this, I was doing this. And now it's going to be Paul as the one that has acted on. He's not, he's not doing things. God is doing things to Paul. Paul becomes the object. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, um, so he says, so, God acted in my life, but again, he's, he's telling us all this with a particular, a particular agenda. When God did this, he says, um, uh, Son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So you have to understand the, this, the Judaizers, this group that is trying to redirect the Galatians, the Judaizers have made a couple accusations against Paul. One is that he was not fully an apostle, not a capital A, first-class apostle. He was subservient to Peter, James, and John. He got trained in Jerusalem. we got to pay attention to others. And so he's going to tell a story. He says, look, uh, I was called by Jesus Christ. No people were involved in this, right? I did not get this from people. I got this from Jesus. And after Jesus called me to be an apostle, my calling is from Jesus to be an apostle to the Gentiles. After I was called by Jesus to be an apostle to the Gentiles, I didn't talk with any of the people that were leaders. Nor, verse 17, did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Right? I didn't do that. Instead, I went away into Arabia. And Arabia, we don't really know. Paul will spend three years there after his conversion. We don't really know what happens there. Some say he's going there to preach the gospel. Others say Arabia is sort of a place of retreat. It's a desert. Lots of people go there to meet God and to be quiet and silent, sort of spiritual exercises. So maybe he's there three years of time with God. We don't know. He says, but I was not in Jerusalem. Uh, and then I returned to Damascus. Then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. So after three years, I went to Jerusalem for two weeks. <laughs> and that's it. 
and I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, uh, and I'm not lying to you. And then um, verse 21, to the end of the chapter, he says he goes to some other places. He says, I don't even go to Judea. So Jerusalem is surrounded by Judea. I don't even go to Judea. They, they've heard about me, but I didn't go there. So he's going out of his way to say, my calling, my training is from Christ, not the apostles. Chapter 2, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. So uh, we believe that this is the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council. I mentioned this before. So Paul's planning all these churches, and then he feels a revelation from God that he's got to go back to Jerusalem. So he goes back to have this discussion to make sure, essentially, that the, the Jerusalem leaders are with him when he's saying to the Gentiles, faith equals salvation plus works. You do not need to become a Jew. You do not need to practice the kosher laws. You do not need to follow. You do not need circumcision. You do not need any of these things. Those, that's Jewish culture. That's not Christianity. So he goes and, um, and we see in verse 3 that he takes Titus with him. Titus was, was a Gentile. And so he says, I took Titus with me, and everybody was fine with Titus. He was not circumcised. They were fine. So as opposed to what the, what the Judaizers are saying to the Galatian Gentile Christians, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to follow these, Jew, these religious laws, you've got to follow the diet. He's saying, look, I went to Jerusalem I took a Gentile with me. They were fine. None of those things applied. Then uh, down in verse 7, he says, On the contrary, they recognized that I was an apostle. Right? So this is, this is Paul trying to build a case that he can tell the Galatian Christians, he is qualified to tell the Galatian Christians how to live, and that this Judaizer, this religious movement is misguided. And then the last thing I'll show you here um, in this passage, verse 15, we have a little fight between some apostles, and, and Paul wins, and so he, he wants to make this point. When um, Cephas came to Antioch, so this is now another trip, Paul has been going to Jerusalem, he's met with Peter twice. Now Peter comes to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. When they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter goes to Antioch, and initially he's hanging out with Paul and a bunch of Gentiles, and they're eating hot dogs and drinking beer and having a great time, and everything's great. And then this religious group sends some people there to spy on them. And when Peter sees this, uh, he, he runs away from the Gentiles. Now, a couple things to realize here. First of all, the fact that Peter runs away is actually not that surprising. Um, the fact that Peter would sit down and eat with Gentiles at all is sort of surprising. <laughs> because the whole Jewish culture up until this point has been one in which if you're a religious Jew, you do not want to do anything that approaches becoming ceremonially unclean. So there's food you can't eat. There's things you can't do. Hanging out with Gentiles is not on the list. So a religious Jew could likely go their entire life without ever sitting down and eating with a Gentile. It was just considered poor form. 
But, but God in Acts chapter 10 has already spoken to Peter and said, like, you can eat this food. We're, we're changing. It's a new day. Christ has come. You don't have to. The Jewish culture, was, it was not about Jewish culture. It was not about Jewish food. It was not about these things. You don't have to follow these things. So he's, he's saying that. And uh, so Peter sort of loosens up. He's out of town. He's away from everybody. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to, you know, eat bacon and hang out with these Gentiles because I can. But as soon as people see him, he runs away. And so Paul calls him out to his face in front of everybody. Because this to Paul is the worst thing. He goes, Peter, doggone it. You, who are a Jew, have been living like a Gentile and you've been fine with it. Now this group of religious goody-goodies come in and they don't like it. And so you are running away. And you cannot do that. You have to be strong. You have to protect the gospel. And, and one of the important things to see, I mean, obviously he's, he's telling the story in part to say, look, you're saying I'm subservient to, to Peter, James, and John, that I'm not a full-fledged apostle. I actually corrected Peter when Peter was wrong. So he's telling the story for that reason. But it's critical for us to note this. That what he says uh, to Peter is, Peter, you are not living in accordance with the gospel. So he doesn't say to Peter, Peter, you're a hypocrite. Peter, you're a coward. He says, Peter, you're not walking in the path of the gospel. Literally in the Greek, it's you're not ortho-walking. You're not walking a true line, right? So uh, an orthodontist makes your teeth true. Orthodoxy is true doctrine. He's saying you're not walking a, a straight path that is congruent with the gospel. And so I said a couple weeks ago, the gospel, the radical news that, that, that God loved us and reaches down for us, right? We don't reach up to him. We don't earn his favor by coming to church, being good. God loves you in spite of who you are. God knows the worst about us, and he loves us because God is loving. And so God sent his son down. It's shocking. It's scandalous. It doesn't make sense. We don't see it in real life. It is grace. So this message needs to not only be applied to people who are not following Christ to come into the the family of God, But those of us who are Christ followers need to walk according to the gospel all the time. We have to keep reminding ourselves of the gracious love of God. And and it it is a liberating, freeing, Life giving message that allows us to be gracious to other people. <laughs> I, am, I am forgiven. I have eternal life. I have the love of God. Uh, I, you know, I'm good. I can be giving and kind to other people. Right? I've got a different kind of a heart because of the gospel. And we need to live lives that line up with the gospel. And so, Peter gets called out by Paul uh, for uh, catering to religious people that are suggesting you got to follow a bunch of religious rules, which differ from culture to culture, and Paul says, don't go there. Now, so that is what... uh, that is what happens in this passage. That is is Paul's story. And... uh, 
And it's important and it's interesting. I, I want to look underneath it for a second. We're, we're headed to communion in just a bit. I, I, I just want to say again that what Paul is saying is based on a handful of assumptions that he has made. And these assumptions are critical for us to realize because they're different than the assumptions that inform modernity. They're different than the assumptions that inform post-modernity. And, and everything's changing. We're looking for some stability, right? I mean, right now everything's changing. We don't even know in culture right now, we can't even agree on how to have have a discussion anymore, right? We're not, we're not debating events or meanings. We're debating the facts. And everybody accuses everybody else of fake news and fake truth and post-truth. And no one can agree on anything because these assumptions are changing. And the fact of the matter is there are a set of assumptions that we can base our life on in this culture. So I'm reading Galatians 1.11 again. For I know... For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, three points. Number one, truth is real and it's a person. Truth exists and it's a person. So as opposed to the relativism of this moment, right, where everybody has their ideas and we're free to believe absolutely anything we want to believe about God or truth, and you have your truth and I have my truth and don't step on my truth, right? As opposed to the relativism of the moment, there is this hard edge that Paul sets down to say, uh, there is truth. And in Galatians 1.8 earlier, he says, uh, and, and think, about, think about even the fact that this whole letter is being written against people who are religious, hardworking, sincere in their faith. And he's saying that they're wrong. Right? They, are, they are religious, they're hardworking, they're sincere, and he's saying that they're wrong. And in Galatians 1.8 he says, if anyone gives you a different message than the message I've given you, including an angel from heaven, if you could get an angel, verifiable angel, in and interview them, and they say something different than what I'm saying, don't believe them, right? There is a, there is a straight line. There is a hard edge. There is a big truth claim being made by Paul. Truth exists. However, in contrast to the modernist, right? He says truth exists and it's a person, right? It's, it's not a cold, hard fact. It's not a thin sort of claim that you can write on a piece of paper. It is a person. And, and, and so there's this radical objectivity to truth, but there's also this profound subjectivity to truth. And once he starts talking about the truth, he's telling his story again because he has interacted with truth and truth has changed him. Right? So it's, it's not, I'm not advocating for, I'm not advocating for post-modernity. I'm not ad- advocating for modernity. We're, we're sort of, what the Christian life puts in front of us is something radically different than either. It's 
truth exists, <laughs> it's a person. It's personal. And it is Jesus Christ. Number two, he says, this truth can be known because it has been revealed. So he says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was it taught to me, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So I will remind you, there are four ways we know what we know. Right? If I were to ask you a series of questions and be the little pest like, a, you know, like the, the two or three-year-old that just keeps asking why, 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 why are we doing this, why are we doing this, why are we doing this, eventually you get to a spot where you don't have an answer because it's just supposedly obvious. Like, why are you taking this class? Well, for my major. Why are you doing that major? Because uh, I want to get a job. Why do you want to get that job? Because I, I want to make money. Why do you want to make money? Because I want to be happy. Why do you want to be happy? Because I want to be happy, right? I mean, I don't know how to answer that question. I want to be happy. It's obvious. So when you go down these paths, you eventually are going to default into one of four areas. It is going to be tradition. It is going to be intuition. It is going to be reason. Or it's going to be revelation. So if you are, if you are a modernist, then it's reason, right? Enlightenment thinking. It's all about science. It's all about, you know, the double blind studies being done by somebody in a white lab coat and they're saying, this is what the, the data says. If you're a postmodernist, it's more intuition. I look inside myself to figure out what is true. And what we're, what we're being told here by Paul is that God has broken in. God reveals himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right, he was the exact representation of God's being. He is, he is the light of his glory. We, we, we have God has revealed himself to us in Jesus and he has revealed himself to us in Scripture. So the word of God incarnate in Jesus and the word of God written in the Bible, God has revealed himself to us. And the last thing that I'll say uh, that, that is driving Paul is not just an understanding that, that truth is real and it's a person, and that uh, it has been revealed to us, we can trust it, but also that this news is so good it has to be shared. And so that is also driving Paul. This news that God is loving and gracious and kind, and that he is, he is reaching down to us, this news is so good it has to be shared. And so uh, in spite of all the hardships that Paul is going to face, he's going to continue to share it. So I, I want to say this. Look, um, these are interesting times that we are living in. Uh, things are changing rapidly. We have to live and position ourselves as Christ followers differently than even five years ago. We're increasingly missionaries in a, in a culture that is moving in different directions. So this is not the end of the world at all. God always wins. The church always marches on, as uh, G.K. Chesterton said. Uh, five different times in history, the church went to the dogs, and each time it was the dog that died, right? I mean, so the church will march forward. Uh, God wins. We don't have to panic, but we have to think a little bit differently, and we have to base our life on things that are actually solid. And when everything around us is changing, there are things that we can go back to. One of them is that Truth exists. God exists. He's a person. We can know him personally. He's revealed himself to us. And we have an opportunity now to celebrate and to share that as we head into communion. So let me pray for us.
Heavenly Father, um, we pray for uh, we pray for hearts that grow in an awareness and an appreciation that you have revealed yourself to us and that you are true and that you are personal and that we can base our life not, not on the foundations of this culture, not try to add you on top of the American dream or whatever it is, but that we can, we can let you rebuild our lives on the foundation of truth, on the foundation of Christ. Thank you for uh, your love and grace. Thank you for a message that is amazing that we get to um, remind ourselves of even as we approach this table. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.